All right, good morning, family. We'll be continuing our study in 1 Kings chapter 7 today. I'll go ahead and open in prayer here. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us all together this morning. I pray that you would uh, just fill this place with your Holy Spirit, Lord God. I pray that you would just speak to us through the reading and studying of your word. And I pray that you would be glorified through this today, Lord. And I pray that uh, if there are any words that are of me and not of you, Lord God, that I just wouldn't speak them, Lord God, but that uh, your word would be spoken to us and to our hearts today, Lord. In your name I pray. Amen. All right. 1 Kings chapter 7. So last week we saw Solomon build and finish the temple. This week he's going to dedicate the temple and he's going to talk about a few of his other achievements. Uh, We'll start back in chapter 6, verse 37 to get the context there again. It says there, In the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv, and in the eleventh year, in the month of Bol, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its details and according to all its plans. So he was seven years in building it. But Solomon took thirteen years to build his own house, so he finished all his house. So Solomon uh, did 13 works, uh, or 13 years of work in building his palace. And that's almost twice as much work as it took for him to build the temple there. So it kind of shows you uh, a little bit of where his priorities are. It's the opposite attitude that his father David had. David said, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. And uh, David felt guilty that he lived in a better house than God's ark. But Solomon wants to build himself a better palace than the temple he just built. So I think the Bible shows us the time he invested in each project so we can kind of see the change in his motives here. Uh, Throughout the uh, Bible here, we see that Solomon's life kind of seems to stray further and further from the Lord. We see in the book of Proverbs, he has a lot of wisdom But by the time you get to Ecclesiastes, you see his hopelessness. And he says, all is vanity. And uh, he's the richest king of his time here. And if he has everything he wants and still isn't content, what does that tell us? It tells us that contentment is only found in God. Uh, Psalm chapter 17, verse 13 says, I'll have a lot of cross-references again today. I hope you guys don't mind. That's how I make sure I'm not just making this stuff up. (laughs) So Psalm chapter 17, uh, verse 13 on says, Arise, O Lord, confront... uh, I'm sorry, I'll give you some context here. David's talking about these wicked men he sees and how they seem better off than he is, even though they're living wickedly. So he says, Arise, O Lord, confront him, cast him down, deliver my life from the wicked with your sword. With your hand for me, O Lord, from men of the world who have their portion in this life and whose belly you fill with your hidden treasure, they are satisfied with children and leave the rest of their possessions for their babes. As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Uh, So David saw the wicked men that seemed better off than he was, but he realized that this life is the only good time they'll have. And uh, his real satisfaction is going to come when he's in heaven. In verse 15 of Psalms here, God's grace uh, is sufficient for us in our day-to-day lives. And we all know that. But uh, our truest satisfaction is when we get to heaven and we'll see God's face in righteousness. When we awaken God's likeness, we will be like him. That means we'll be sinless, we'll be holy, and we'll be eternal. And... uh, As we look forward to that future satisfaction, it makes it easier to be content today. You know, you don't mind a bumpy, uncomfortable ride as long as the destination is a great place. It's easier to put up with the bumps. So back in Kings again, uh, on to verse 2 now. It says, He also built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was 100 cubits, its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits, with four rows of cedar pillars and cedar beams on the pillars. And it was paneled with cedar above the beams that were on 45 pillars, 15 to a row. 
There were windows with beveled frames on the three rows, and windows was opposite window in three tiers, and all the doorways and doorposts had rectangular frames, and window was opposite window in three tiers. So uh, this house of the forest of Lebanon was four times bigger than the temple, and it had 45 pillars of cedar. That's like a lot. That's probably why they called it the house of the forest, because when you walk in, you just see all these pillars of wood, and it probably looked like a forest. And you got all those windows there, tons of windows with light coming in. And it probably smelled great, too, with all that wood in there. It probably smelled like a lumber store. But um, uh, later in the chapter 10, too, it mentions that Solomon is going to hang 500 golden shields on the walls, too. So it's just going to be, he puts a lot of fanciful work into it here. On in verse 6, he goes on, he also made the hall of pillars, its length was 50 cubits, and its width 30 cubits. And in front of them was a portico with pillars, and a canopy was in front of them. Then he made a hall for the throne, the hall of judgment, where he might judge. And it was paneled with cedar from floor to ceiling. And the house where he dwelt had another court inside the hall of like workmanship. Solomon also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken his wife. All these were of costly stones cut to size, trimmed with saws, inside and out, from the foundation to the eaves, and also on the outside to the great court. The foundation was of costly stones, large stones, some ten cubits, some eight cubits, and above were costly stones, hewn to size, and cedar wood. The great court was enclosed with three rows of hewn stones and a row of cedar beams. So were the inner court of the house of the Lord and the vestibule of the temple. So all these buildings here it's mentioning, they're all connected and they all share a big courtyard in the middle. So he really made like a big palace here with all the different rooms and all. And uh, I think it's interesting that he made an alliance with Egypt and married Pharaoh's daughter. It's a wise thing to do in the eyes of the world to make alliances like that. But when God's on your side, you don't need to make compromises with the world to make allies. In the Bible, uh, Egypt is usually a picture of the world. And the Israelites were led out of there and told never to go back. But even in the book of Jeremiah, the Israelites want to go back to Egypt. That's 800 years after God led them out by Moses. And uh, God once uh, warns them not to go back or they'll die there in the book of Jeremiah. And in the same way, we aren't to go back to the ways of the world once we're saved. In Romans chapter 12, you guys probably know this verse before I even turn there. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Must have fallen out of my Bible. All right. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul tells the Roman believers here, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Um... So we need to make it a point not to go back to Egypt since we're now in Christ. And uh, we don't want to be conformed to the world. We want to be transformed. And this verse always makes me think of Play-Doh. When I was a kid, I'd take the Play-Doh and I'd squash it into the toy mold. And out pops this ugly big bird from Sesame Street. <laughs> and uh, you look at it for a second, but that's kind of all you can do. And then you just squash it again. And that's what it's like for us if we let the world conform us. Since we're in Christ, we don't fit into their mold anymore. They won't accept us. It'll only hurt us. And we need to be transformed and uh, be lights in the dark world. So Paul here calls us to surrender to God. He calls it a reasonable service. And uh, after everything that God's done for us and will do for us, it's very reasonable that we should be a living sacrifice to God. And uh, looking back to Solomon here... Uh, He's making a duplex for his pagan wife, and it's going to lead him astray later. 
So back to verse 13 now. It says, Now King Solomon sent and brought Huram from Tyre. He was the son of a widow from the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a bronze worker. He was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill in working with all kinds of bronze work. So he came to King Solomon and did all his work. And so this shows that Solomon's still trying to get the best uh, he can find for his projects. We saw him doing that with the temple there. And he, goes to, he went to Hiram, king of Tyre, for all his wood. And now he's going to Huram from Tyre to do his bronze work. And uh, it sounds like God must have gifted this guy because it says he was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill. So to be filled with like all three of those, it must be God who helped him. Uh, verse 15 goes on. And he cast two pillars of bronze, each one 18 cubits high, and a line of 12 cubits measured the circumference of each. Um, then he made two capitals of cast bronze to set on top of the pillars. The height of one capital was five cubits, and the height of the other capital was five cubits. He made a lattice network with wreaths of chain work for the capitals, which were on top of the pillars, seven chains for one capital and seven for the other capital. So he made the pillars in two rows of pomegranates above the network all around to cover the capital that were on top. Thus he did for the other capital. The capitals which were on top of the pillars in the hall were in the shape of lilies, four cubits. The capitals on the two pillars also had pomegranates above by the convex surface which was next to the network. And there were 200 such pomegranates in rows on each of the capitals all around. Then he set up the pillars by the vestibule of the temple. He set up the pillar on the right and called its name Jachin. And he set up the pillar on the left and called its name Boaz. The tops of the pillars were in the shape of lilies. So the work of the pillars was finished. So these huge pillars here, they're 27 feet high and 18 feet in circumference. And then when he puts the capitals on top of them, that top piece, it's uh, 34 feet high. So uh, on the inside of the temple, they overlaid everything with gold. They overlaid the wood structure with gold. But here he cast these out of bronze. So it was all one solid metal piece here. Um, then he named the two pillars, which is kind of funny. But uh, they were so massive, I guess, he thought they needed names. And the name Jachin there means he shall establish. And Boaz means in it is strength. So even the pillars were meant to remind the people how mighty their God was and of the promises he made to them. And then it's cool that the top of the pillars weren't designed with lilies, but they were the shape of lilies. So you got this like huge flower on the top of the pillar. He really put some uh, artistic ability into this. So on to verse 23 it goes on. And he made the sea of cast bronze... Ten cubits from one brim to the other, it was completely round. Its height was five cubits, and a line of thirty cubits measured its circumference. Below its brim were ornamental buds encircling it all around, ten to a cubit, all the way around the sea. The ornamental buds were cast in two rows when it was cast. It stood on twelve oxen, three looking toward the north, three looking toward the west, three looking toward the south, and three looking toward the east. The sea was set upon them, and all their back parts pointed inward. It was a handbreadth thick. Its brim was shaped like the brim of a cup, like a lily blossom. It contained 2,000 baths. Um, so this sea of bronze would be 7.5 feet tall and 15 feet in length there. It's a pretty good-sized swimming pool. And they'd use this as a water reserve, so they'd have all their water in there. They'd be constantly like filling up their pitchers and things for all the different uh, rituals they do. They had a lot of cleaning they had to do. Uh, so it would have come in a lot of handy for them. And again, it's artistic. It's shaped like a big flower, it sounds like. Like just one giant uh, flower bowl. And then it's sitting on the 12 cattle, all looking different directions. So that's pretty cool. Um, verse 27 goes on. He also made ten carts of bronze. Four cubits was the length of each cart, four cubits its width, three cubits its height. And this was the design of the carts. They had panels, and the panels were between frames. 
On the panels that were between the frames were lions, oxen, and cherubim, and on the frames was a pedestal on top. Between, uh, below the lions and oxen were wreaths of plated work. Every cart had four feet and had supports. Under the laver were supports of cast bronze beside each wreath. Its opening inside the crown at the top was one cubit in diameter, and the opening was round, shaped like a pedestal, one and a half cubits in outside diameter, and also on the opening were engravings, but the panels were square, not round. Under the panels were the four wheels, and the axles of the wheels were joined to the cart. The height of a wheel was one and a half cubits. The workmanship of the wheels was like the workmanship of a chariot wheel. Their axle pins, their rims, their spokes, and their hubs were all of cast bronze. And there were four supports at the four corners of each cart. Its supports were part of the cart itself. On the top of the cart, at the height of half a cubit, it was perfectly round. And on the top of the cart, its flanges and its panels were of the same casting. On the plates of its flanges and on its panels, he engraved cherubim, lions, and palm trees. Wherever there was a clear space on each with wreaths all around, thus he made the ten carts. All of them were of the same mold, one measure and one shape. Then he made ten lavers of bronze. Each laver contained forty baths, and each laver was four cubits. On each of the ten carts was a laver, and he put five carts on the right side of the house and five on the left side of the house. He set the sea on the right side of the house toward the southeast. So these carts here would be used in uh, helping with the animal sacrifices they do. They were six feet wide and five feet high. And um, they held a lot of water in them. So they'd be able to wheel the water around for all the sacrifices. All the cleansing they'd have to do there. And uh, you can see the workmanship in it. He used the same exact mold to make all ten carts. So they all were exactly alike there. It sounds like he's making them the right way here, too. You know, it's not the Ikea carts that are going to fall apart in a couple months. In verse 40, it goes on, uh, Hurim made the lavers and the shovels and the bowls. So Hurim finished doing all the work that he was to do for King Solomon for the house of the Lord. The two pillars, the two bowl-shaped capitals that were on top of the two pillars, the two networks covering the two bowl-shaped capitals that were on top of the pillars, 400 pomegranates for the two networks, two rows of pomegranates for each network to cover the two bowl-shaped capitals that were on top of the pillars, the 10 carts and 10 lavers on the carts, one sea and 12 oxen under the sea, the pots, the shovels, and the bowls, all these articles which Hura made for King Solomon for the house of the Lord were of burnished bronze. That means they polished it to be real shiny. In the plain of the Jordan, the king had them cast in clay molds between Sukkoth and Zaratan. And Solomon did not weigh all the articles because there were so many. The weight of all the bronze was not determined. So the king and Hura made all these things. And I was wondering when I was reading the first part there how they cast them all. But it tells us they made clay molds uh, in this valley here. So that still takes a lot of work. You know, all the designs he put into them, he must have etched them on the clay first and then poured the molten bronze in. So it must have been a real feat, even for nowadays, I think that'd be uh, really impressive. Let's see here. And there was so much bronze that they used, they didn't even weigh it. That's kind of crazy to think about. I'm curious how much went into those, just the pillars alone, but they made all these huge things out of it. Verse 48 goes on, Then Solomon had all the furnishings made for the house of the Lord, the altar of gold, the table of gold on which was the showbread, the lampstands of pure gold, five on the right side and five on the left in front of the inner sanctuary, with the flowers and the lamps and the wick trimmers of gold, the basins, the trimmers, the bowls, the ladles and the censers of pure gold, and the hinges of gold, both for the doors of the inner room, the most holy place, in for the doors of the main hall, the temple. Um, so the gold items mentioned in these verses were to go inside the temple. The golden altar, the golden table for showbread, the golden lampstands, 
Uh, all the bronze work was on the outside of the temple, but the gold was on the inside of the temple. And uh, a lot of commentators say that bronze in the Bible is a picture of judgment. In Judges chapter 16, verse 21, I'll just read these verses here. Uh, when Samson was captured in his back sudden state, it says, Then the Philistines took him, put out his eyes, and brought him down to Gaza. They bound him with bronze fetters, and he became a grinder in the prison. In Jeremiah 52, 10 through 11, when King Zedekiah rebelled against God and against the king of Babylon, he was captured, and it says, Then the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and he killed the princes of Judah and Riblah. He also put out the eyes of Zedekiah, and the king of Babylon bound him in bronze fetters, took him to Babylon, and put him in prison till the day of his death. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 23, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream to warn him against pride and taking God's glory. And an angel in his dream proclaimed against Nebuchadnezzar, Chop down the tree, which was a picture of Nebuchadnezzar in the dream, as Daniel would explain later. Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. So there are three examples of bronze being a symbol of judgment. And uh, I think there's even more throughout the Bible. But uh, outside the temple, where the people were allowed to be, there was judgment all around them. They had the huge bronze pillars looming over them. They had the sea of bronze with all those bronze cattle looking at them. They had the bronze instruments used in the slaughtering of the animals there. They offered their sacrifices to temporarily cover their sins and postpone judgment. But inside the temple, the place only the priests were allowed to go is where the gold was. And we looked at this last week, how by Jesus' death on the cross, he brought us from the outer courts of judgment into his holy place. He made himself that completely perfect and eternal sacrifice. And so there is no sin that uh, his blood can't wipe out. Rejecting his gift of salvation is the only thing that can keep us on the outside now. But the veil was torn and we're allowed to come boldly before the throne of grace. So looking back at um, chapter, uh, I think we were in verse... We stopped at verse 50 there. So verse 51 says, So all the work that King Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things which his father David had dedicated, the silver and gold and the furnishings. He put them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. Now Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers, the children of Israel, to King Solomon in Jerusalem, that they might bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is in Zion. Therefore, all the men of Israel assembled with King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. So all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the Ark. Then they brought up the Ark from the Lord of the Lord from the Tabernacle of Meeting, and all the holy furnishings that were in the Tabernacle. The priests and the Levites brought them up. Also King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him were with him before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered for the multitude. Then the priest brought up the ark from the, of the covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their two wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. The poles extended so that the end of the poles could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from the outside, and they are there to this day. So Solomon had called all the elders, all the chiefs of the families. He held this great feast here and made literally countless sacrifices as they brought the Ark of the Lord up. And he's kind of following in his father's footsteps. When David brought the Ark up, to that uh, previous place, every six steps that the priest would take, he'd make another sacrifice. Because the first time he tried to do it, uh, I think the guy's name was Uzzah, he died. Because they were doing it the wrong way, putting it on a cart. And he tried to balance it and touched it and died. So David wanted to make sure he was doing it right and made 
sacrifices, every six steps they took. In verse 9 it says, Nothing was in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. So these were the stone tablets that had the Ten Commandments on them. Uh, They are 400 years old at this point, but it shows that God made these commandments to be lasting, and the fact that they are still in the Ark of the Covenant shows that they were still in effect. And uh, let's look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. This is his uh, Sermon on the Mount here. In verse 17 he says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So these Ten Commandments are still in effect today for us. And Jesus didn't get rid of them when he came, but he fulfilled them for us. Uh, He fulfills these commandments that we can't keep on our own so that we won't be under them anymore. And Galatians 5.13 says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty, only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So the law hasn't gone away, but um, it's been fulfilled. And it's lost its sting for us believers. In the old covenant, they had to keep the law for fear of what God would do to them. But in the new covenant that we have, we get to keep the law as an act of love in response for what Jesus did for us. It goes back to that, this is your reasonable service again. It's the least we can do for God. Uh, Back in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10, it says, And it came to pass, when the priest came out of the holy place, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud, For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. I love this verse. That's what I want to see happen when I try to serve God. I want him to be so present and active that I just have to stand back and watch. And it shows us that God accepts this house uh, that Solomon made here and that he would dwell among his people. They got to see him enter that temple so they knew. And the same exact thing happened when the tabernacle was first assembled. The cloud came down and filled it, and Moses had to get out of the tabernacle because he couldn't do anything in there. And it takes us back to Psalm seventeen fifteen again. As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. And uh, the priests here, Moses, uh, Isaiah, John, all these people who had visions of God or saw him like this, they couldn't, literally couldn't stand to be in his presence. And it's because he's too holy for our mortal bodies. But uh, when Isaiah had the vision of God in heaven, he said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So we see there that he felt like he was coming undone because he was in the presence of God. And... um, when we get to heaven, we'll have those compatible bodies and we'll be able to stand in his presence. And when we see his face being in his likeness, then we will be satisfied. So the glory of the Lord filled this temple. In verse 12, it goes on. Then Solomon spoke, The Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed the whole assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel was standing. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who spoke with his mouth to my father David, and with his hand has fulfilled it, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I have chosen no city from any tribe of Israel 
in which to build a house that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, Whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well that you, it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build a temple, but your son who will come from your body, he shall build a temple for my name. So the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke, and I have filled the position of my father David, and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord has promised. And I have built a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And there I have made a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And so uh, throughout this section here, it almost sounds like Solomon's bragging. He's like, look at the temple I made. But he's really giving glory to God because he's recognizing that all this work that has happened was only because God was involved every step of the way. And God chose Israel to be his people, and out of Israel he chose David to be the established king and to be the family line that the Messiah would come from. And Solomon's rejoicing that God helped him finish this responsibility that was laid on him to build the temple. In verse 22 it goes on, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. You have kept what you promised your servant David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. Therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant David, my father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel, only if your sons take heed to their way, that they walk before me as you have walked before me. And now I pray, O God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. So the first thing that really sticks out to me here is that Solomon admits that there is no God like the God of the Bible. There are a lot of different gods out there that different people and different cultures worship. Even atheists really make science their God or themselves their God. But no matter who or what you worship, they don't compare to our God. There is no God that is as loving as our God. God loves us to the extent that he came to the earth in the form of a man and died in our place. Who else can say that their God loves them that much? And another thing Solomon said was that God keeps his promises. And I can't think of any false gods that keep their promises. God's never broken a promise and he never will. And when the people worship these false gods, a lot of times they're really worshiping the devil. And uh, he's the father of lies. He won't keep any promises he makes. He only knows how to steal and kill and destroy. And I like to look at John chapter 10, verse 7. Here Jesus is uh, telling the people that he is the true shepherd, the good shepherd, that he's the door, that he's the bread of life. He kind of just keeps uh, going on and on here. In verse 7 it says, uh, Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. So that's the loving God we serve. The devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. And uh, we can have faith that God will keep his promises and we can rest in his promises. Also in this section in 1 Kings again that we read, Solomon asked God to keep his promise and let there always be a descendant of David on the throne on the condition that they would keep walking before God. And we see throughout Kings here that they don't keep their end of the bargain. They don't keep following after God. But Jesus kept his end of the bargain. He... Uh, 
the descendant, Jesus was the descendant of David, and he's on the throne forevermore. So, God's faithful even when we're faithless. Verse 27 says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. And so Solomon recognizes here that this temple that he put so much time and money and effort into is not able to contain God because even the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. Isaiah 40.12 says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span and calculated the span and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in a scale and the hills in a balance? And so that verse there is saying that God measures the heavens with a, a span. And a span is uh, when you spread out your hand from the pinky to the tip of your thumb. It's supposed to be nine inches. It's half a cubit, which is from the tip of your elbow to the tip of your finger, which is supposed to be 18 inches. And it's saying that God measures like the whole universe with just one hand. And that's crazy to imagine because the earth is 3,000 miles in radius and the sun is 400,000 miles in radius. And the star Betelgeuse in Orion's belt is 600 miles in size. And, uh, you know, you measure all the distances between all these things. And it's just crazy to think that all that would, like, God would measure in his one little hand. And uh, there's that song, he holds, has the whole world in his hand. It's funny because, like, if he's measuring the whole universe in his hand, that world's got to be microscopic. And so he... Uh, Measures the whole universe with his hand, but he numbers the hairs of our head, too. And uh, Solomon says, Behold, heaven and the heavens of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple that I have built. And it gets even better for us in the new covenant, because we know that our body is the temple of the living God, and God's in us. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. He says, or do you not know, well, the context here is he's confronting the church about sexual immorality. But in uh, 1 Corinthians six nineteen, it says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So in uh, this new covenant, uh, in this church age we're in now, we don't need a temple to go offer sacrifices in. We are the temple in the new covenant. And that's a really cool thought to have. All right. So back at 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 28, it goes on. Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today that your eyes may be open toward this temple night and day, toward the place of which you said, My name shall be there, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place. So Solomon's praying here according to the will of God. Uh, when you pray what God wants you, wants to do anyways, you're praying according to the will of God. And God wants to hear our prayers, and he does. And he wants to forgive our sins. And when we pray in repentance... He does forgive our sins. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And verse 31 goes on in 1 Kings again. When anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and comes and takes an oath before your altar in this temple, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked uh, bringing his ways on his head and justify the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. So God is just, and that is what Solomon is asking of the Lord here. In Exodus 22, God told the people how to take an oath uh, in front of the tabernacle. They'd, make, they'd swear that they didn't steal something from their neighbor. And it was supposed to be a seriousness enough of an oath that that was supposed to be good enough. If they swore before the tabernacle, you were supposed to believe them. And um, the people really got carried away with this in Jesus' time in Matthew chapter 23, verse 16. 
I'll just read that real quick. In Matthew 23, 16, it says, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, Whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, uh, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. So in Jesus' time, the Pharisees were making these loopholes to get out of keeping their promises. They're like, oh, you only swore by the altar and not the gift on the altar. And Jesus was telling them, this is a serious thing. And when you swear by it, uh, it counts. Um, Let's see, where were we here? Verse 33 now. Uh, when, your people, when your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you, and when they turn back to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in the temple, and, and you hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave to their fathers, when the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, when they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflicted them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. And so here Solomon's asking God to forgive the nation as a whole when they repent. And the things he goes on to list and pray about here in the following verses after this um, are things God himself talked about in Deuteronomy chapter 28 through chapter 30. He mentioned all these things that the people of Israel were going to fail and fall into. And uh, he talks about um, the blessings they'll receive if they obey him, but the curses that'll fall on them if they're rebellious. And he talks about how he will have compassion on them when they repent and seek him again. And it's summarized in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19 through 20. I'm just going to paraphrase it, but it says... uh, Choose life that you might live. Choose blessing and not cursing. It's your choice to walk before the Lord there. And the things that Solomon prayed about here, we see them come to pass. Um, Later in Jeremiah and Isaiah, when the nation's taken captive and taken away to a foreign land. And we see later in 2 Kings, when uh, because of King Ahab's sin, there's a drought in the land. But uh, God sends the rain again later. And the cool thing is is that through these judgments here, God raises up prophets to make intercession for the nation and to preach repentance. God doesn't give up on us. He's always reaching out to us in our sins, and he wants to forgive us and bring restoration. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 11 Let's see, Romans 5, 6 through 11 says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. For it was if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by life, by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So Jesus died for us when we were still in our sins. And uh, that shows how much he's reaching out to us. He didn't wait till we repented to die for us. He died for us when we were still sinning. In Luke chapter 15, verse 20 through 24, we see even more of God's attitude toward repentance in the story of the prodigal son. And uh, you guys, I think, all know that story. In verse 20 here at the end of it, 
It says, And he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Let me see here. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this is my son, who was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. So that's God's attitude toward repentance. He doesn't wait for us to walk all the distance back to him. He doesn't meet us halfway. But as soon as he sees us humble and repentant, he runs to us. And he has that compassion there. He doesn't put you in the servant's tent and make you earn his trust again, but he throws us a party. And that's how loving and compassionate and merciful and gracious our Lord is. Let's see how much time we got here. We'll go a little bit further. In verse 37, it says, When there is famine in the land, pestilence or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, when their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer... Oh, I think I went further than I meant to there. But he's talking about famine and pestilence and locusts coming in as a judgment. And that sounds like he's talking about the book of Joel, which is, uh, happens way down the road there. But the locusts came in and ate up all their crops as a judgment. And Joel begged the people to repent. Uh, I wanted to read a few verses in Joel there. Joel chapter 2. Let's see if I can find it. Verse 12 says, Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. And then in that same chapter, in verse 25, it goes on uh, after they repent. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never be put to shame. And so uh, it's amazing there that God doesn't like to punish us. He loves us, and he wants to bring us uh, restoration when there's repentance. And in that context of Joel there, it's kind of crazy how can God restore all these crops that these locusts have eaten up? You know, they don't have seeds to plant again. They don't have food to eat. But God says he's going to restore it all in a miraculous way. And I think he does that in our lives too. Verse 38 goes on. Whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people, Israel, when each one knows the plague of his own heart and spreads out his hands toward this temple... Then here in heaven, your dwelling place, and forgive, and act, and give to everyone according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you gave to our fathers. So God is just, and he's also personal. He deals with people on an individual level. He doesn't just deal with the nation as a whole. And one of the example of this is how he dealt with Sodom and Gomorrah. Even though the city was corrupted and evil, and God poured out his judgment on them, he still saved the few righteous people out of it and pulled them out. And even in that group of Lot's family there, his wife looked back in disobedience, and God dealt with her specifically. And so even when God pours out judgment on a group or a nation, he's able to preserve those who are innocent. Verse 41 goes on, Moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country for your name's sake, 
For if they hear of your great name and your strong hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this temple, here in heaven, uh, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. So God cares about the foreigners, the Gentiles like me. Uh, there's a lot of examples of God reaching out to save and help foreigners in the Old Testament. And there's even more examples in the New Testament. And uh, the temple had a section of the courtyard dedicated to the Gentiles. Uh, they couldn't come as close to the temple as the Israelites, but they were able to come and worship and pray and offer their sacrifices. And this is the area of the temple that... Uh, of the Gentiles, that Jesus was angry with the money changers and drove them out. They were in the Gentile court there. So we can see that Jesus is not a respecter of persons, but he loves us all. And there are those who might try to tell us that God loves the Israelites more than he loves us, but I think they're wrong. In verse, uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 through 3, it says... Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure." And so, how do we know that God loves us? We know because he adopted us by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, and he calls us his children. Uh, I think we're out of time. and then I guess this isn't the best place to stop, but I think we'll stop here today. Uh, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Lord God, for your love toward us, Lord, that you want to forgive our sins, that... You want to restore, Lord God, and bring us back to you, Lord God. Thank you that you run to us when we repent, Lord Jesus, and that you are fast to forgive. I just thank you, Lord God, for uh, your word today and the things we saw of you today, Lord God. And I pray that you would uh, let this word be blessed, Lord, and that it would stay in our hearts, Lord. I know we covered a lot and went through it fast, but I pray that you would bring back these things to our remembrance as we need them. And I pray that you would just uh, bless this congregation today, Lord, as they go out. And bless this time of worship and this last song, Lord God. And I pray that you would be glorified in all of this. In your name I pray. Amen.